All right, y'all, one more time in the book of Malachi. If you'll go ahead and turn your Bible or, or if you just got your bulletin, go ahead and turn in that. Or I don't know if you're, a, if you're a screen Bible person. I can't do the whole reading on a screen thing, which it's not entirely accurate. I mean, I do have my sermon on a screen, but I, it just doesn't, it's not the same for me. But um, if you, if you uh, any way you can get in front of you, go ahead and do that. Uh, th- we are finishing up Malachi today. Next week, um, we begin um, a, a little more of a question answering series. We call it Reconsider. Um, if, if you've got friends or neighbors or coworkers who, um, yeah, just aren't, aren't churchgoers, or maybe they are, but they don't really believe it, which is a lot of the valley, if we're being honest. Uh, this, this is the kind of series that will probably be helpful to them, maybe be helpful to you. I hope it will. Uh, just to be able to be honest about some of the questions that we do ask in regards to the Bible. Um, that's going to start this week, or next week, sorry, but this week we finish up in Malachi. Now, we've we're skipped around a little bit, um, only because uh, there, there are two passages in this book that kind of deal with the same issue. And so we're going to use the last little bit of this book to kind of speak to the whole thing. So we're in uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. If you have your place, go ahead and stand in honor of God's word. And we're going to jump right in. This is the word of God. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, his statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And you will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is God's word, even with harsh words given so that we would flourish. Would you pray with me? can't do that on our own. You're the one, in fact, who initiated a relationship with us. You called us here. You called us into worship this morning. You have been speaking with us through your word as we've been responding with prayer and with singing, both to seek your face and to delight in you. Now we just ask that you would reveal yourself to us, that God, the, the the person work of Jesus and his, his goodness and grace and the totality of what he has done might come to the forefront and everything else fall to the wayside. We need you for that. We can't do it on our own, Lord. And so we joyfully uh, depend on you this morning. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, when you were in school, I'm thinking about school because I was uh, my my wife and I went to the 
JMU game yesterday, go Dukes, we won by a landslide, it was awesome. Um, it was, it was awesome. But I'm thinking about school. So when you were in school, and maybe you're still in school and you, and you know this, um, how did you feel about substitute teachers? It's kind of a rhetorical question, right? Um, but I'll be honest with you, I was a little ambivalent. Because on the one hand, you had the reality when you walked into that classroom and you saw the substitute teacher, you had the reality you probably weren't going to do a whole lot of work that day. At least if you were in middle or high school, right? Elementary school, it was like, I don't know what the difference is between the two, but in elementary school, it's like you have a full day of work ahead of you with someone who doesn't know what you're supposed to be doing. But in middle and high school, it's like, yeah, you have video time or whatever. So on the one hand, you you knew that it it was going to be pretty easy, if not pointless. Um, On the other hand, what generally happened, at least in the classes that I was in when there was a substitute, was the class was like bonkers. It was like nuts. Like anyone who could go out of control did because they thought they get away with it, right? Now, some of us were cool with that. Some of us were the bonkers kids. It's okay. We know. It's all right. Others of us, though, were just angry the whole time. And, and both of those responses, both the anger and the going nuts, went, happened because of the assumption that what you were doing wasn't going to get reported. So if you were the good kid, you got angry because you're doing what you're supposed to and they're not, but they're not going to get punished for it. And if you weren't, then you're doing what you're doing because you just want to have fun. And so you're going to make fun of the spitballs and all that fun stuff, right? So if that's true of a teacher, our emotional response is to what happens when the teacher's not looking. How much more do you think that's true of us when it comes to God? Whether he's watching, what he's going to do about stuff. What if you were living with the assumption that nothing you did here mattered? In other words, if there is a God, and maybe there is, it certainly looks like he doesn't care at all about what's going on down here. And then you come across a passage like this, which is, I don't know, for most of our culture, passages like this just seem like a power play, a way to get people to behave, threats of fire and furnaces and burning people up like stubble. And as a Christian, maybe you're a Christian here this morning, you're like, what am I supposed to do with a passage like that? Is it supposed to scare me? (laughs) It doesn't sound hopeful. Well, what we're going to see this morning is simply this, that for the Christian... Judgment isn't a fear. It's actually a hope. Like for the people that this was originally written to, this statement is not totally meant to be a fear. It's meant to be a hope. All right, so let's get into this. There's an outline, as always, if you want to use it. If not, don't worry about it. All right, so one last time. Situation of Malachi. So Malachi is writing sometime in the 400s B.C., right? Israel in 539 has come back from exile. I won't get into the prehistory on that. You can listen to the like hour long sermon on that one. But uh, the prehistory of, of Israel coming back from exile in 539 under the Persian king Cyrus and they've returned and they had expectations because of God's word about how that was supposed to look. Namely, we're gonna come back from exile. God's gonna call us back. Our sins are gonna be totally forgiven and taken care of. He'll set up for us a king, a ruler of the line of David. 
cast off the Gentiles, and he will make the world right. And they've come back from exile. They're sitting in the land. They're still under a Persian. Everything seems to be going wrong, and all of their expectations have been dashed. They're disappointed. They're disappointed with God. Maybe you are too. Maybe you had expectations of what, what Christian life was supposed to be like or what it's supposed to be if you, if you keep your nose clean and go to church and be responsible. It's not like that. What do we do? How do we react? How do we respond? We're going to start this morning in chapter 2, verse 17, and we're doing that because um, it asks the question that gets answered right there immediately after in chapter 2 and then later gets answered at the beginning of here of chapter 4. And so I just want to, I, I want to start there for us to be able to understand what is going on. Because if you remember, and some of you will and others won't, but this book is set up as a, as a series of disputes that God has with his people. And those always start with God making an assertion and then the people going, how have I done that? And then him answering, right? So here it is, verse two, or chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Ooh, that's, that's unfortunate. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? All right. Let's start uh, with what they say. Malachi says, uh, you have wearied the Lord with your words. That, that word wearied is, is, is very interesting, but it, it kind of gives the sense of not just being tired. Exhausted is certainly part of it, but also being out of patience. Ugh. How many of us tend to think that, we just, that God is out of patience with us all the time? But uh, this is, God, like Malachi is saying, like you have wearied him. You have, you've made God exhausted and out of patience with your words. What are those words? Basically, <clears throat> the words are people flipping the Bible, flipping scripture on its head, right? They're flipping scripture on his head by saying that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, right? Well, that's not what the scripture says, but it's like, this is my experience. My experience is that God actually likes evil and not good. That God actually uh, isn't really out for justice. And so this is another sign of their disappointment. They're living in a land with other sinners just like them. And what they're seeing are, is the, the wicked seeming to advance in life, the wicked getting the good things, and, and the good, who they assume is, them not. You with me? This kind of question the why, why are things going so well for bad people? This is not kind of unique in this place. It's all actually all over the place in the Bible. But here, it's being asked in a way that's dissimilar to what we find in other places in the Scripture. Because other places in the Scripture, let's take, um, <clears throat> let's take Psalm 73, okay? You can look that up later if you want, Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a, is a song, it's a prayer from someone who is asking the question, why do the wicked prosper, right? Why do the wicked prosper? Why is it that I see this? Now, it's, what's the difference between that and what we see here is that that is being addressed 
to the person who can answer the question. In other words, it's borne out. It's a question of why is this the way it is to God? It's in relationship. This is not. This is the people saying, God doesn't care anyway. In other words, they've broken off. They've cut off the relationship. They're not asking God, why is this going on? Help me understand. This is what I'm seeing, but I need help from you to figure it out. This is going like, God doesn't care anyway. So if God doesn't care, why am I caring? Right? It's not, I don't understand, Lord. It's, what's the point anyway? So what ultimately they're saying is, I'm looking around and I'm not getting the good things that I should be getting. Everybody else is, and those people are not doing it right. I am. Ever thought that? I'm sure you have. Ever thought maybe the reverse? Like, I want those people to get theirs? Listen, of course you have. Like, let's not fool ourselves. Of course you have. Listen, if you, even if you're here this morning and you don't believe in God, like my father didn't believe in God either. He was a complete atheist. But one of the things he would always say in his thick New England accent is he'd say, what comes around goes around. Now get in the car. Like that's what he would say, right? What comes around goes around, Right? And, and, and so many of us, even if we don't believe in God, we're assuming that eventually what comes around is going to go around and they're going to get theirs, right? Well, two questions come from that. One is, what makes you think that? And number two, why is it that you never seem to think what comes around is going to, or goes around is going to come around for you? Now, some of you are like, well, Rick, listen, I'm not perfect, but I'm not like that. Well, I guess that's true. I mean, I don't know you. You don't know me. I may be like that, and you, don't, you just don't know. But I'm wondering, have you ever found it interesting that the times in which you rage at the world and the way things are, the ways in which maybe you see someone on TV get away with a crime that you knew they have and you're like one day they're going to get what's coming to them that you never seem to think maybe I will too what is it that leaves that out in our minds what is it that makes us think we're going to be fine because look Christian or not I think this is true you know I I mean some of us even as Christians might know different intellectually we know you know you know you know the stuff that Jerry read all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. I know. And yet, when it comes down to it, we still go, well, I mean, I know I deserve this, but, but I'm not like that guy. Like that guy, that lady, like she really, really gets it. Well, why is it? Well, I think this comes down to two things. The first is this. You and I tend to evaluate our actions based on our intentions and we evaluate everyone else's based on their effects right you don't think so parents think with me kids are out playing all of a sudden a crazy missed swing of a wiffle ball bat cries begin you come out you're rushing out what happened what happened 
Oh, he hit me with a bat. And the first thing you hear is, I didn't mean to. Oh, <laughs> that makes it better, right? That boo-boo just poof, goes away. I didn't mean to. That's, everything's fine, right? Everything's fine. That doesn't change, does it? If you're married. How many times have you used that argument? Well, that's not what I meant. Oh, come on. I have. Like, you haven't used that? Like, you said so and so. I'm like, well, that's not what I meant. And then the gaslighting starts, right? The, the whole, like, you know, this is really not my problem. It's your problem. You're in tears, but it's not me. It's you. Like, that's, this is what we do, right? We want to have our intentions be what matters for us. But when it comes to others, we, do, we care less about what they meant. We only care about what it did. And so the first thing is the way that we want our actions to be judged versus other actions. And the second thing is we take everyone's stuff and we line them up on a scale. And then we place ourselves on that scale. I'm not Mother Teresa, but I'm not Hitler. I come somewhere in between. And those people that we think should receive judgment, they go just on the other side of the line that is just, that we are on just this side of, right? It's like, I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm okay. It'll, it'll balance out. I know Jesus, but you know, really it's me. And you know, you know that you think that, Christian, if you're here and you, you're like, yeah, yeah, but I know it's really Jesus. I, mm. But when you mess up, what do you do with it? Because if when you mess up, what you do with it is, oh, well, now I need to be sad for six days, or I need to, I need to think I'm a really bad person for a number of days, then what you are proving is that you really don't think it's the work of Jesus that keeps you on that side of judgment. You really are thinking it's me and my work and my level of repentance that's doing it, or better penance. So we line everybody up and we go, the people that deserve it are over there, the line is here, and yeah, Maybe we think we're way over here on the line, but most of us were like, oh, we're, I'm, I'm pretty humble. The line's like right there. I'm just, but, but I'm not those. See, there's something deep in us that tends to believe that we are okay. And if we aren't, if we aren't okay, and some of us know that we're not, but even in our not being okay, we justify it based on our situation, based on our upbringing, based on, on, on our motivations, whatever. It's like, well, you don't know the circumstances I was under. You don't know the parents I had, or that's not what I meant. What's amazing, again, Christian or not, is that we're worried about it at all, especially if you're not a Christian. I mean, think with me for a minute. Why do you feel the need to justify your behavior anyway? I mean, who cares? Why do you need a justification? Better, who are you justifying yourself to? You see, the Bible argues, in fact, that we do all of this. And we do the spectrum thing. We line ourselves up. We judge ourselves by our motivations. And we judge other people by their effects. And we do that because we've, we are made for a God that we've betrayed. And we know there is something wrong in us. 
but we want with every bit of our being to fix that problem ourselves. We want with every bit of our being to go, I know there's a problem, but I'm trying my best to either fix it or cover it up. And so we justify, we mitigate, and we say, that's not what I meant. Because we know that one day we will be held to account. Even if you don't believe it. All right, so how is Malachi going to answer this? Well, look down at verses 1 to 3 in chapter 4. Behold, the day is coming. The day. Gives you the shivers. The day. Well, he calls it the day here, and later in the passage he calls it the day of the Lord. So let let me help you understand what the day of the Lord is. Because this is a phrase that's used over and over and over in Scripture. And um, if we don't have a good understanding of what that is, we can fall into some really deep pits with, with interpreting the Bible as a whole. Okay? The phrase, the day of the Lord, um, in the scriptures, there are a bunch of these. Like uh, God coming and, and um, taking his people away in exile was called the day of the Lord. Uh, God coming and judging Babylon by the Persians was called the day of the Lord. Uh, God coming and judging Israel in uh, 70 AD and later in 139 when the temple was destroyed was called the day of the Lord. Uh, the day of the Lord is a day in which it's, it's, it's described as a period of judgment. It's a time when God comes to judge and everywhere in the Bible, it has, it has both in one sense a, a threatening posture and a hopeful posture, Okay. Threatening because obviously, like if you're on the wrong side of the day of the Lord, that's a, a, a threat, a warning. Warning's better than threat. It's a warning. A warning towards repentance. But hopeful because if you're on the right side of the day of the Lord, that's actually a really good thing. I don't get it. We'll get to it in a second. But all of these days of the Lord were meant to be pointing forward to a great a climactic day in which God would come and set the world right. We had broken it. We broke it in the garden. He promised to fix it then. And that's what the day of the Lord, the ultimate day of the Lord was meant to be. A time when God would come and vindicate those who had faith in him, show that yes, you were right all along and to judge and, and, and cleanse the world from the things that were, were harming it. Okay. And this is what this is getting to. The day is coming burning like an oven. When it says burning like an oven, it doesn't mean your cooking oven. He's talking, that, that word there means blast furnace. This is like the furnace, if, if you're familiar with the story of Daniel and his three friends, this is like that kind of furnace where you open the door and people die it's so hot. Except for the guys who get thrown in, they're dancing with Jesus. It's really kind of funny. If you haven't, if you haven't read that story, you should read it. But anyway, um, it, it, is a, it is meant to be uh, this picture of something that is, um, that, that is unavoidable, but more so that that furnace, the purpose of it, uh, this gets against some of our Dante understandings of hell, okay? Let's be honest. Most of our understandings of hell, contemporary, didn't come from the Bible. They came from a dude by the name of Dante who wrote a great book. There's seven levels and all this fun stuff. Seven, is that right? Bailey, is that right? 
Bailey would know. He's our literature guy. No, he doesn't know. Okay. Pretty sure it's seven. All right. It's not meant, like, when, when, it, when he's talking about this day coming like an oven and will, when all the arrogant, the evildoers will be stubble and will set them ablaze. What it is not talking about is this is a day that's coming to punish them. That is a cleansing idea. That is a picture of cleansing. Why? Because the idea is that when we betray God, when we have betrayed God, when we do what, that's what the Bible calls sin, that what we are doing is harming ourselves, others, and the world. And what God has made, he doesn't want to see harm come to. And so the act of judgment is meant to purify, to cleanse the world so that that harm no longer takes place. The point of God's judgment is to purify and cleanse his creation of all that is hurting it. It is to make things right, not just to punish. All right, so, so who, who are those folks that need to be made right? Well, the arrogant. Um, listen, I know, you and I are arrogant. I'm, I'm pretty arrogant. Like, those of you who know me know this. But what it means, when the Bible uses the word arrogant, it's a technical term for those who believe they don't need God. Those who live as if I can be independent of him, I am actually uh, the, the master of my own fate, the captain of my own soul. The evildoer are those who, who, who uh, pursue independence from God in a way that harms other people. In other words, they look out for number one and they're looking out for number one actually is like it always does, means that it, if I'm taking care of me, it's at cost to you. Okay? So God is saying, I am going to cleanse the world of that. But, he says, those who fear my name, those who fear my name, um, that, that word fear is not being afraid, though there is a, a measure of that. It means trust, it means reverence, it means devotion. Those, what we would, the way we would put it is those who have faith in me, those who have trusted in me. For them, it says, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Okay? In other words, what is going to be cleansed from you will actually bring healing. That you will be made more like what you were meant to be. And this will result in you jumping like a, a calf out of a stall. Now, I'm sure Ben could come up and tell us exactly what that's like. The image to me gets the sense of freedom, of play, of running and freedom and just, just jumping out because now you're free and, can, and delight. And so the image there is the world will be cleansed. And those who have faith in, in him, in God, that they will be cleansed as well and healed of all that has been broken in them. And that will result in a freedom. Okay? Which is to say, like I've said before, that judgment, the judgment of God, the day of the Lord, that great and terrible day, as it's called in other places, has two sides to it. On the one hand, yes. It's a warning. But on the other hand, for those who have placed their faith in, in Jesus and, and look to him, that is not a day to be shunned. Don't you want to be free? Don't you want to like 
be able to love people fully without worrying about what's in it for you? Don't you want to be free of that which hinders you? To be able to delight in God all the time and not just when the right music's playing? Don't you want to be free of your fears of the future? I do. Man, I woke up this morning with some crazy anxiety. It would be really nice. You know what it would be like? You can pray for me. I've had the most terrible sleep in the last few weeks. What would it be like to never have a bad dream again? What would it be like to just wake up in joy because it's another day to be with Jesus and to not have to worry like, am I gonna be enough today? What would it be like, ladies, you wake up and not look in the mirror and wonder, is anyone gonna find me special today? To have all of that cleansed from us. The day of the Lord is hope. It's hope. So it has two sides, but the question ultimately is what makes the difference between the two? And that leads me to think about this question. Because let's be honest, like judgment is not a, exactly a popular thing in our culture, right? But I mean, nothing that Malachi has talked about over the last several weeks is incredibly popular and we've just been going on the theme, so why not keep going? Like judgment's not popular. And we think that, we think in our culture, we think that judgment is not popular because we're enlightened people, right? And so what we end up thinking to ourselves, maybe you've said this, maybe you've heard this, I've heard it a ton. Why can't God just forgive? And by that, what we mean is, why can't he just move on and let all of this stuff go? Why does he need all this, I don't know, other things? It's actually amazingly culturally arrogant of us. And, and it, it shows our blindness to what drives our thoughts on things. I, and what I mean is this. If you were to ask people who were, uh, let's just take the low-hanging fruit. If you were to, ta- if you were to ask people uh, from third world countries, in other words, like people who don't have stable government, people who, for whom um, the idea of a coup d'etat or government overthrow is a constant thought. And you never really know how are you going to pan out in the next regime. And by pan out, what I don't mean is are your taxes going to be raised? I mean, are your daughters going to be taken from you? Are, are, is all of your land going, are you going to be dispossessed of things? Are you going to be killed, beaten? If you were to ask those folks, what do you think about a God who's going to judge and make all things right? You know what they wouldn't say? Oh, that's barbaric. They would say, yes, please. Yes, please. Because I certainly don't have any power. Someone's got to make this right. See, for people who haven't bought into the illusion that they can actually control their universe, the idea of someone who can who will come and make things right is a great comfort. For us, eh, it's a little more money. We'll just throw more money at it. That'll take care of it. I'll take care of it with my amount of preparation. I'll take care of it with what, you know, what have you. I'll take care of it. But for us, we think, why judgment at all? Why can't God just forgive and move on? Well, there are two problems with this. The first is that it totally misses the nature of God. And the second is that it totally misses the nature of what's wrong. You see, first, 
when it comes to the nature of God, we tend to think it's our default, and, and it's, I don't know if it's Western, American, whatever. We tend to think that God is some kind of amorphous force, some kind of impersonal power. I don't know if this comes from like Yoda or uh, motivational speakers. I don't know exactly what it comes from. Maybe too much Greek philosophy working its way into our heads. But what this does is it kind of views God as kind of distant or dispassionate. That's a better word. Dispassionate about everything. Doesn't really care. Right? It's almost as if he kind of has these rules. They're kind of arbitrary. I mean, what's the big deal? The scripture teaches us that God is a person. That he is actually not dispassionate about anything. He's not, uh, you, you know what I mean by that, right? And I know if you're like Presbyterian, you've been Presbyterian a long time, you're like, but the confession states that God has no passions. Listen, okay? Listen to me for a second. That's not what I mean. What I mean is uh, di- to be dispassionate means to have, to, to be uninterested, disconnected, uninvolved, unmoved. But the scriptures teach us that we can grieve God. You can grieve him. Remember we talked about his, what, cha- what doesn't change last week. But what we're talking about now is that God actually is intensely passionate about what happens here. About your choices. About the choice you made this morning before you came here. The choice maybe you're making right now and you're keeping hidden from everybody. He cares. He cares a lot. And these rules, if you want to call them that, these rules aren't distinct from him. Like these laws, the Ten Commandments, things like that, they aren't distinct from him. They're not like, well, today I will decide adultery is bad. They are, adultery is wrong because I keep my promises. Not me, God. I try, but let's be honest. Like God says, I tell you not to murder because I am the giver of life. I tell you not to covet because I am the great provider of all things. See, they're not arbitrary. They reflect him. And so for us to say, I don't like that law, I don't like that rule, is for us to say, I don't really like you. I want to break my promises. I don't like that you keep yours. I want to take life. I don't really care that you give it. You see what I mean? We've gotten wrong what the nature of God is like, but it also... We've gotten wrong the nature of what is wrong. See, if God is upset because we broke some rules, even if he really, really, really likes the rules, then you may have a point, but that's not what these are, right? The Bible talks about what is wrong, not as breaking rules, but breaking a relationship, that relationship that we were made for. That it's not just like God going like, well, you, you broke the family code, you jumped on the couch, I gotta punish you. Kids, sorry, you don't get out of that. You do. It it is true, but not for the reasons you think. But God is saying, no, that's not it. You betrayed me. When you went and you you were greedy and you went after that raise that you didn't really earn or you you cheated on your taxes or whatever, it's not just God going, I don't like cheating. It's, It's God saying, you didn't trust me to provide for you. I always provide for you. I'm still providing for you. 
when you said like, what I really want, what's really gonna fill me is, is the approval and love of others, what you were actually saying is, God, you're, you can't fill me. You don't even want to. And you're like, I, that's what I'm here for. That's what I do. It's a betrayal. It's a relational betrayal. And it messes with our relationship with God. It betrays him, but it also harms others. Now, think with me. If that's the case, we've gotten wrong our, the nature of God. We've gotten wrong the nature of what's wrong. Think with me, because we tend to think of forgiveness as simply moving on, but the Bible sees forgiveness as relational. Forgiveness and acquittal are two very different things. Forgiveness and not guilty are two very different things. Not guilty is a verdict before a dispassionate, uninterested, objective court, right? The state versus the state. Who is the state? There is no who. That's the whole point. The state gives gives voice to a victim, but that you're not against the victim, you're against the state because it's something that is dispassionate, uninvolved, objective. Forgiveness. A court cannot forgive you because forgiveness is relational. It has to do with a person. It has to do with being restored to a relationship. It's not about punishment. So when God forgives scripturally, a relationship is restored. And when we forgive in that way with others, it's where a relationship goes back to the way it was supposed to be. It isn't by letting things go. And I know some of us in this room think that's what it is. You're like, no, 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 I've, I've forgiven lots of people by just letting it go. I guess it's one of two things. You don't understand what letting it go means or you really haven't. And what that means is I'm just never gonna mention it again because you still hold some of yourself back. The relationship isn't really restored to where it was or even what it's supposed to be. It's visible, but that's probably about it. Because when we forgive, what we are doing is we are bearing that betrayal for the sake of the one that has betrayed us. Because someone, you've been betrayed and you've done the betraying. You know someone's got to bear that. Someone has to bear that. For us, I mean, it's, it's, that's the nature of a betrayal in, in and of itself. So for us, most of the time, what that bearing of, that, of, of, the, of the betrayal is, is us risking that that can happen again. I'm not going to protect myself. I'm going to forgive and I'm going to offer myself back under the risk, perhaps even very likely risk that it's going to happen again. Bearing of a betrayal is what judgment is. It isn't God being mad at you because you weren't a good boy or a good girl. It is God giving those who have betrayed him and others, in other words, those who betrayed him and others, probably still are what they want, a life without him. It is righting the world and healing all the harm done to it the harm done by us to each other, to ourselves and the world. So can God just let that go? Let me ask you a question. Would you be satisfied if he did? Really? Would you be satisfied if he just let all the injustice go? If he just said, nah, some of you have borne great evil in this room. 
Statistics prove it out. I don't even have to know you to know that's true. Some of you I do know, and I do know you've borne it. Would you be okay if God just let it go? I doubt it. See, the issue isn't really judgment, is it? The issue is who gets it. Here's the thing. Um, all of God's people have heard this before. All the stuff that Malachi's saying, you know, we've talked about it. They've heard this before, at least in some form. This is your standard. God is coming to judge. Just be patient. It's all going to play out in the end. Uh, he's going to make the world right. He's going to bring you back from exile speech. The problem is, the problem is ultimately the problem of timing. <laughs> Haven't they already returned from exile? Wasn't this already supposed to happen? And so God tells them this. Look down at verse four. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. What this sounds like to most of us is, judgment is coming, remember to do the good thing. Right? Isn't that what we think? That's automatically what we think. Hey, I'm going to get you. Better be a good boy. Like, that's what we think. Now, can I tell you, at Horeb, you can go back and read the story in Exodus. At Horeb, the law that God gave Moses wasn't just Ten Commandments. It wasn't just rules for right living. It also involved this little thing we call sacrifice. It involved these things that they, that they called the, the ceremonial laws, the uncleanness, the, the exile and return pattern. It, it involves all of this. So when he says, remember the law, what he is not saying is, hey, hey, get with it. I'm coming. I'm going to get you. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, remember the story. Remember the story. Is there a standard? Yes, there's a standard. Am I going to provide for you? Yes, I'm going to provide for you. Do I know that you can't meet the standard? Yeah. Am I asking you to? No. I said I would fix this, not you. And I'm going to fix this, not you. To remember in, in the Old Testament, when you, see, when you see God saying to remember something, in fact, when you see Jesus say it at the table, it doesn't mean think back on that. It means participate in it. Be a participant in it. Be caught up in this story of redemption is what he's saying. Judgment is coming. Remember the only way to, be a, to, to escape it is not through your effort. It's through me. I am the one who will do it. I, can, I, have, I am going to right the world. And if you trust me to take care of you, I will right you with the world instead of writing you apart from it. And then he says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers of their children, the children of their father, lest I come and strike the land. God is saying in the last book of the, of the Old Testament, the last verses, the last book of the Old Testament, that before this day comes, I'm going to send somebody. It's going to be like Elijah. And he's going to come and he's going to proclaim repentance. 
And that repentance is meant to help turn your hearts back to the, to the, relation, the core relationships that you were made for. Instead of looking out for you, you're going to seek to look out for one another. And the New Testament kind of links this back, that, that that forerunner, that messenger, that prophet, Jesus himself says, that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist was sent before the ultimate day would come. And why would you need someone like that? Well, it says that if not, he would come and strike the land. I love this phrase, with a decree of utter destruction. That is a word, well, it's three words in ours. It's one word in Hebrew. That was the word that God used for what his people were supposed to do when they entered the land they were made for. The, the, what they were supposed to do to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the otherites, and thoseites. They were to come in and exercise what in Hebrew is called a harem which I'm glad I can still do. I, I screamed enough at the, uh, the game last night that I can still make that noise. Uh, but the, the, the harem is meant to be an utter ban. It's meant to, for, to be, a, to be a, a foretaste of the judgment of God. And he's saying, if your hearts aren't turned towards repentance, when the time comes, if I weren't going to send this person ahead, what would utterly happen is that you would be left in your sins and would be struck with that kind of ban. See, that's the problem. This entire book has been talking about how, through their disappointment with God, that they have been betraying him. That God's people, called by his name, rescued by him, cared for by him, done all of these things, that by their disappointment in the fact that he's not doing it when they thought it should be done, have been betraying him. And he's saying, if I don't act in grace to send you somebody before I come, you will be caught up in the judgment that is coming. Even you. Even you. See that ultimately in this passage, the whole tenor of this book isn't that God hasn't or isn't doing what they said, what he said he would do. It's that his people, people like us, are judging him based on how they think it should take place. And even in that, he's going to, by grace, send someone before he comes to judge to turn their hearts. Now, let me conclude with this. Here's the problem in this passage. God is basically saying to the people, oh, I, I do care about what's going on in the world and I do plan to make it right. Absolutely. But you need to understand that if I were to come and do that on your timetable, you would get caught up with the arrogant and evildoers. That my withholding of that is for grace's sake. It's for your sake. <laughs> and see, that's the problem. All of us, if God were to come and judge, would get caught up in it. There's no avoiding that. That day, the day of the Lord is coming. Listen to me. There is no person who has ever lived, is living, or will live who will not be held accountable for what they have done. Everyone. Every sin, every betrayal of God will be made right. It will be judged by him. The question, especially if you're a Christian this morning, you need to hear this. This is very important. The question is not, Will God judge what you've done? The question is, who will bear the weight of what you have done? If you have been in the church a while, I would put it this way, hopefully to kind of rattle it out of your head a little bit, to be shocking, maybe. 
we'll see. Salvation. I'm going to use some churchy words. So if you're not a Christian, just tune out because this is churchy and you're like, I don't know what that means. I know. Right now I'm saying this for someone else. Salvation is always, always by your works. The question is, whose works will you be saved by? Salvation is always by works. It is always based on whether you have ever betrayed God. The question is, whose works, whose record? Because you see, when Jesus came, he lived without betraying God, ever. But he willingly went to the cross to bear the weight of betraying God. And in that moment, in that moment, Jesus hanging on the cross, the judgment day of God that is still to come suddenly jumped back into our past and and landed fully and squarely on the shoulders of Jesus. That day, the great and terrible day of the Lord came back in time and landed on Jesus. Jesus bore the judgment due to those who would place their faith in him. He didn't die for sin theoretically. He didn't die for sin in principle. He didn't die as some kind of like sacrifice that could then be applied to what you and I have done. He died for the specific sins of people. God does not overlook your sin. He doesn't overlook my sin. He judges it. He judges it. But he judges it if you're a Christian in Jesus. You're thinking, yeah, 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 Rick, I get it, I get it. No, you don't. I know you, I know you don't. Because if this is true, then it isn't that God kind of winks at what you did this morning or yesterday. Or like I said, maybe something you're keeping hidden right now. God didn't wink at that. He didn't go, oh, that's all right. Just try better next time. There's no big deal. It's that he already judged it. Do you understand? If you're a Christian, do you understand that all of your sin has already been judged? This is where what I just said is super important. Because what we think is, well, I mean, Jesus died in the past. What I'm doing is in the present. So I'm just applying the work of Jesus to what, no, 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 no. What Jesus did was the day of the Lord invading, the day of the Lord, which hasn't happened, invading into our past. So in other words, all of your sin that you will ever do was judged on that day, shot backwards. Ah, I know, this is confusing. It's hard. Here's, here's what I mean. You being sad for it doesn't make up for it because it's already been made up for. You're surprised. You're surprised. You're like, I can't believe I did that. God knew. In fact, Jesus died for that thing that you were surprised for. And I don't just mean in principle. I mean, literally, really, truly. You're like, I gossiped again. I know Jesus died for that particular instance of your gossip because God knew on the last day and threw it back on the weight of Jesus. You with me? Do you understand how awesome that is? There is nothing you have done that God hasn't already accounted for. Christian, there's nothing you have done. There's nothing you will do that God didn't already know about 
And I don't just mean like, well, he's outside of time. And he blah, blah. No, I mean like he's fully present in all times. This is true. And because of that, he has your record in front of you. He goes, now it's on Jesus that all of those things has been born, that every ounce of, of the judgment of, for your betrayal that you have committed, every ounce of it that was due at the end of the age, on that great and terrible day of the Lord, if you have faith in Christ, has already been dealt with by him. Time travel. If you're not a Christian, listen, I know you have doubts. I know, I know you do. Because most of the time when you've heard, and this is true, most of the time when you've heard preachers talk about judgment, what they are trying to do, I'm not even gonna challenge that. What they are trying to do is control you. They're talking about judgment. They're trying to scare you. They're hoping to scare you into uh, behaving a certain way. I know this. Listen, this is, this is true. There's lots of guys out there doing that, men and women, frankly. But what I'm asking you to do this morning is not to stop doubting. I'm asking you to radically doubt. I'm asking you to doubt even those doubts. Because you know at the end of the day that what you're against is not the idea of judgment. It's who gets it. It's not the idea of it, it's, it's who gets it. And you know that it isn't the idea of a universal moral expectation that you're against because you can think, well, I've got my truth, they've got their truth, but if their truth means they can steal your car, you're still gonna be angry about it, right? You'd be like, they shouldn't have done that. Well, why not? It's their truth. Oh, you're right. It's not that I'm against everyone having the same moral expectation. It's that I want everyone to have mine. Good. All right, that's great. At least we've gotten somewhere. But can I tell you that judgment, what, I, what we're saying here doesn't have to be a fear for you as long as someone else bears it. But you have to depend on him. You have to depend on Jesus. You have to depend on him to bear it because for the Christian, judgment isn't a fear. It's never a fear. It's always a hope. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for this time in the book of Malachi. We ask that you would um, have mercy on us as we move forward to take our disappointment, to not stop being disappointed in you, we can't do that, but to take those disappointments to you, to be honest with you about them and to seek your grace to be healed. And I ask for any in this room who have not placed their faith in Christ, Lord, that you would move in them right now to do so, that this idea of the day of the Lord can become for them a hope. And for the rest of us who have placed our faith in Christ, Lord, work in us that it would be a hope. For we need that, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.